the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn here on Westwood One. And of course, let's say hello to co-host Alan Niven. Bonjour, Sir Alan. Comment allez-vous? Uh, très bien, merci. Et vous? Bien, bien, bien. Freezing, uh, mind you. Uh, the, the month of January has been in the wonderful, it's minus 35 wind chill uh, month, and it's not been nice, but hey, spring is coming. Well, Music keeps you warm. Music keeps you warm, and uh, you know, take the dog for a walk and walk fast. I, I do have to say that the dog has saved me a lot of time because we get to the tree line on the property, which is maybe a hundred feet away, fifty feet away. You know, and he runs to the tree line, just about to enter the forest, and he goes, "You yeah, know," and he runs back to the door all by himself, and I go, "Oh, great, walk done." So. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, but we are here to talk rock and roll, and I have got two great guests for you. From the mighty Megadeth, it is a bass player or bassist, David Ellison. He and Frank Bellow of Anthrax have a project called Altitudes and Attitude. The album is called Get It Out, and it is out now, so it's definitely worth checking out. So me and Dave talk about the band talk about that and we also deal with other things and then on the other side i have from twisted sister jj french and this started off um, interestingly enough because twisted sister and jj are not doing the interview rounds i had posted on uh, i think it was january 3rd or something uh on this day, Ace Frehley tries out for Kiss. J.J. French and Bob Kulik were also there. And J.J. phoned and said, hey, wait a minute. That that ain't true. That's not right. What are you talking about? I go, well, it's in Ace's book. And, I, you know, I put a picture of the, the, the passage in the book. And he goes, well, Ace is wrong. And I said, do you want to come on air and tell me about that? So he came on air and we talked about that. And in the interim, there was this whole thing about politicians in Australia using Twisted Sister song. So we talk about that and we got into copyright. And it, it really is an interesting discussion because it's not, hey, I have a new album. Let me sell it to you. Or, hey, I'm going on tour. Let me sell you a couple of tickets. It's a, well, you've heard it. Well, how would you qualify the discussion? I would say that it was a decent little bit of rock talk. Yeah, I mean, that he... it was uh, that it was somebody talking about um, oh, their viewpoints, their philosophies a little bit, and uh, just not shilling um, some yeah. new product. And uh, I like it when that happens. I like it when we get beyond. Um, well, here's my new record. Please pay attention to it. You know, I thought your, your conversation with uh, Peter Frampton was really cool right, recently. Yep. And we've had some good ones lately. That's what I like about it. It was a great conversation. And a lot of times you also said shilling. You don't get time for conversation because it is about shilling. It is about, all right, so you've got this album. Tell me how the album worked. Okay, great. Now you're doing a tour. Great. Tell me where the tour is going. And I, listen, I, I, I don't bemoan that. I love interviews. I love talking to whoever's doing that and plugging the stuff. It is nice to have these conversations that are just free form, not guided. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't mind picking something up here. Um, I was watching my news feed this morning, and 
know how I feel about Kiss. You love and them? Up comes, <laughs> and uh, up comes Paul Stanley. And he was being interviewed because he and Gene have decided that their restaurants are going to give a free meal to a TSA worker uh, while this um, ridiculous situation prevails in right. the United States. And well, the government to, shut down. to all TSA workers, I think, right? Not just one. Yes, right. all okay. TSA workers. Yeah. And I take my hat off to that. And there was a moment, actually, when he was asked what his viewpoint was on the uh, political situation. And he stepped back and he said, well, I'm just a rock and roller. I like to bring people together, um, you know, which is an essential platitude at the heart of what we all do. But on the other hand, I take my hat off to people who make a point and stand for something. And one of the things that I feel about this is just because you play a guitar, or you're a good entertainment businessman, and Gene Simmons is an exemplar of a businessman, I don't think that that precludes you or disqualifies you from having an outlook or a viewpoint of the society you live in. And this whole thing of, oh, they're rock and rollers, they shouldn't have any viewpoint, I disagree with that entirely. In fact, I like it when rock and rollers have a viewpoint, and I like it when they speak for the common man, and I like it when they speak truth to power, and I wish they'd do it more often. Yeah, and I'll say I'll say two things on that. Uh, in our interview with J.J. French, we don't talk about that kind of politics, but we do talk about copyright and stuff, and it's nice to hear his very lucid point of view, very well thought out. It's not, hey, man, just... So that's nice, but also... Uh, to your point, Bon Jovi, uh, Sir John Bon Jovi, is also doing the same thing. Uh, and I'm, I'll read here from, from the uh, newspaper. It says, uh, JBJ Soul Kitchen, Soul Kitchen is teaming up with the Murphy Foundation, Governor Phil Mur Murphy, and his wife's philanthropic organization to serve meals at their New Jersey location. So Rock and Brews with Gene and Paul are doing it. John Bon Jovi with his JBJ Soul Kitchen is, uh, and, and by, by the way, is providing um, meals for federal workers that are, uh, uh, you know, with this government shutdown. So, so both of them are doing it. They're both doing it very, very um, what's the word? auspiciously, I guess, maybe. And, you know, they're, they're, their heart's in the right place. So I know John gets criticized a lot for, you know, what he did with Richie Sambora and the music and the then that the last few albums haven't been rock and Kiss gets criticized. Just, I mean, that's that's almost a hobby for, for half of America to criticize Gene and Paul. And yet they do something like this and, you know, it shouldn't go unnoticed. You know? No, it shouldn't. And I like it. it Interesting you were, used the word auspicious. Um, I don't have a problem at all that it's being made public because I think that encourages other people in their generosity. And as far as that goes, I'd say, you know, any major tour that's out there right now, um, why don't you just put bins up for people to bring cans? Anybody can, you know, spend 75 cents or a dollar on a can and bring it and put it in a bin and distribute that to uh, government workers who are under tremendous pressure. Um, it's part of being the community. It's part of giving back, and it's cool. 
Yeah, no, it is. And it's funny because I did post the news about John Bon Jovi on my Facebook and somebody wrote back and said, well, they just need to suck it up. And if they don't like it, they should take their skills over to the private sector. And it's just like, you know, I hate to tell you this, but a lot of the federal workers that are being affected and I'm Canadian, so I, you know, but it's it's the janitors, it's the secretaries, it's the underlings. It, it's not these people with, you know, expense accounts and $500,000 salaries. It's it's low common people I admit, you know if, please i apologize i don't I, that's what i mean i don't i don't i don't mean low that that was a very poor choice of words um but yeah it's blue collar, it's blue collar paycheck to paycheck working folks from, yeah. working from paycheck to paycheck exactly we were both in exactly the same group right there yeah. and these are people who are finding it tough to get by and the community should help them because their damn government doesn't yeah so off of that for a second, because this is not a political show. We'll get right back to, to Rock Talk. And um, Dave Allison, I love talking to Dave. He is one of, and, I and we'll, I'll ask if you know Dave after that, but he lives in your part of the world. He is one of the genuinely nicest people in rock that you will ever meet. And there's a few of them out there. To me, Alice Cooper is like that. Rob Halford's like that. Um, and Dave, Dave is right there. I mean, just always a pleasure to talk to him. Uh, always has interesting stories to tell. He's just nice. And so I do wish the band Altitudes and Attitude a lot of success. You know, the album is called Get It Out. This new album is done by Jay Rustin, a Canadian who's also done Anthrax, Steel Panzer, Stone Sour, Stone Sour uh, the new Black Star Riders. Um, what's sort of your take on, on Dave? Are you a, a Megadeth fan? Do you know Dave? Have you ever run into him at the local grocery store since he's out in Arizona as well? First of all, I mean, Arizona's fairly large, um, not as large as Canada, um, which I understand is owned by the Queen, which is un bugging me at the moment. But um, <laughs> Me too. With, uh, with Dave, he lives down in Phoenix, and I live up in the mountains in Prescott, so um, we don't drink at the same place. Um, but Dave is uh, very much a part of the Phoenix music community, very much liked. He's a cool guy. Uh, we were on the same label, Capital. Um, there was one night I had to pick his singer up off the floor at a party and put him in a cab in London and pay for his cab to get him to his hotel. And uh, I, I, when Dave was looking for a singer, I said, it's okay, I've, been, I've taken care of him. He's on his way to his hotel. Um, but, you know, Dave, Dave's a good guy. He, he's got a, a really good reputation and a lot of people like him. Yeah, he, uh, he he really is. And uh, well, let's let's get over to Dave and listen to uh, to this interview. I, I God, I'm trying to think. This this has got to be somewhere in the dozen range of interviews I've done with Dave, and just always always pleasant. And uh, here, without further ado, is the one, the only basis extraordinaire. David Ellison. We are speaking with Dave Ellison, of course, of Megadeth. But we've got this new band, Altitudes. And attitudes, and this is the first uh, Dave. Well, first of all, welcome. Hello. Thank you. How are you? Happy New Year to you. Yes, absolutely. Always, always a great pleasure to uh, to talk to you. And so many good things going on. We we've got this uh, this album, the A and A. I call it A and A just for short. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the Mega Cruise, and you've got Ozzy Osbourne, and you've got all kinds of stuff. So let's start off with Get It Out. You started off. What a two years ago, I guess it was year or whatever with the EP. Talk to me about this full length album and putting it together. 
Yeah, actually, to be honest with you, it was almost it was four years ago. I think that we put the EP out. Um, oh my god, yeah. My how time flies, but yeah, get it out. A good, certainly a good title for the new year. Um, and a lot of this was, you know, DeFrank and I working sort of covertly um, in our breaks from Megadeth and Anthrax touring over the last several years to uh, continue on the 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 musical bromance and love affair we had over these songs together. Um, you know, we. Uh, Frank and I, of course, have known each other as the Anthrax and Megadeth guys for many years. But um, when we were doing some bass clinics together in Europe around the Big Four with Metallica, Slayer, Megadeth, and Anthrax, Frank and I were doing some some bass clinics for Harky, our amp company. And I leaned over to Frank one night in London. I said, you know, dude, we should really just write some of our own songs. <laughs> We've got some backing tracks, at least, for these clinics. Um, and that, that's what led to us doing this. And, and, you know, he threw a couple tunes my way, which were, um, off the original EP, tell the world and booze and cigarettes that he had. And, and I put together this, uh, this track called here again, which was kind of designed as this really hard hitting kind of hard rock, you know, backing track. And, you know, we just flushed him out into songs. And I mean, very quickly, we had so much fun doing it. We realized we had a, a plethora of ideas and, we're both writers that write things other than just thrash metal. And, um, you know, so, you know, combined forces, all boats rise. Yeah. And I can't wait to, I mean, it, it is a fantastic thing, but talk to me about also working with producer Jay Rust. And he is of course, former Canadian newly appointed or anointed American citizen, Jay Rustin worked of course with Anthrax and, um, Stone Sour and now Black Star Writers. What does he bring to the table? Cause to me, there are two producers today in metal if you want a great album you either go to andy sneep or you go to jay rustin um talk to me about what he does and what he brought out in in your album well what he brings to the table first is definitely his canadian accent he has not lost that i'll let you know so he may be an american but he's still a canadian i'll tell you that much but uh you know jay you know frank recommended him because first of all he's a bass player and uh, he and Frank get along real well. Frank's a, just a, a, a Jay's a, a lovely gentleman, very kind, and, and as many Canadians, a very, very uh, astute, high quality of work, um, and a great work ethic. And when we brought the idea up to him, he loved it. And um, the only downside is he's left-handed, so some of the guitars in his studio we can't play because we're right-handed musicians. But uh, you know, we just the, the the camaraderie between the three of us was really great. And um, you know, he brought in uh, J- Jeff Friedel to play drums at the time. He was playing in uh, uh, Pussifer and Devo, and of course now he's in every Maynard band except Tool. And uh, Jeff has been a, was great to to play drums on the record, um, and he suggested a lot of the guests that came in, like having Satchel from Steel Panther, uh, Nieder Strauss, um, Gus Chi, um, God, the the list goes on. Even John Donai from Anthrax, and uh, um, you know, so he he really helped bring uh, even some of the the, the the guitar, like the lead guitar players, into the. Well, another one, great one, is, is Christian from Stone Sour. Um, Jay, having just worked on the, the latest Stone Sour record, you know, Christian is not only a phenomenal lead guitar player in his own right, but he does something very unique that I'm always looking for a guy to do this, and, and there's not many people who can do it. And that's that guy who can lay down just lush layers of tracks to really flush a song out. Um, and that's, I mean, he was just 
phenomenal with that. So, you know, certainly Jay's instincts as a producer, um, you know, tenfold on this record for sure. Now, and of course, on the track late, you've got Ace Fraley, right? Yes, we got Ace Fraley to play on that. And, and it's funny because we were recording the song. It was me and Jay and uh, Frank sitting in Jay's studio and we we're just kind of strumming through it. And I think Frank just stopped and he goes, you know, Ace Fraley, wouldn't it be great to get Ace to play on this track? And Jay goes, I know Ace. I got his number right here. Let me give him a holler. <laughs> so we, we, you know, that, that kind of stuff, you know, that synergy, you know, to make dreams become reality. And I, and that one's truly a dream because of course, Frank and I being huge Kiss fans um, and, you know, knowing Ace, both of us having played and worked with Ace and, you know, shared stages with him, him not being in Kiss. Um, getting to know Ace is just, you know, the guy, not the poster on our wall from, you know, when we were kids, but, uh, um, really a perfect fit, um, you know, to have him there, you know, we don't want to just line this up with, a, with just a, like sort of a celebrity who's who, um, we wanted great musicians to play on it. And of course, great musicians are often famous because they, um, they're known for what they do. And I think we got a pretty good across the board look on this everything from heavy metal shredders and thrashers to you know someone like ace who's just you know probably the quintessential uh childhood hero classic rock icon yeah that that must have been quite a moment to have him on one of your albums um of course kiss has the end of the road tour where do you sort of see yourself with with megadeth is that something that's even crossed your discussions yet or is that Call me back in 15 years, Mitch, and I'll tell you if we've talked about it yet. No, we have. We've talked about it. Um, you know, being before Slayer put their, you know, farewell on sale. I mean, Dave and I, you know, look, this, you know, people always go, oh, well, the Stones are still doing it, and they're in their 70s. And it's like, look, Start Me Up is a very different musical format than Holy Wars every night. You know what I mean? You know, doing these, like, you know, fretboard gymnastics and, you know, head banging and, you know, playing everything at, you know, mock speed and ultra shred, you know, type of playing. And, and, you know, there's certain music that you can play later. I mean, it's funny. I hear songs on the radio, like I hear, you know, whatever pop songs, Maroon 5 or something, you know, and I'm just going, man, that guy's going to have to be singing that stuff at the top of his range well into his later years, you know, and that's, you know, that's the, the blessing and curse, I guess, of having hit songs is look, you know, your phone is always going to be ringing for you to go out and play and sing those songs. And, and, you know, I think that's probably one of the things in the thrash genre, you know, this stuff that we play is, is very musically intense. It's, it requires a very high level of physical fitness. And, you know, just as you get older, as a chiropractor explained to me in Mexico city, a friend of mine, he said, you know, everything up to age 40 in your body is generative. Everything after age 40 is degenerative. So you're basically, that's why they call it over the hill. Cause after 40, you're basically trying to slow down the degenerative process, you know? And, and, you know, I, I think in our band, we've gone to great lengths to remain healthy and physically fit. And, um, you know, we've got a great lineup, but, you know, look, you, you can't fight, fight age, you know, and, and it, you know, I think, I think for us, we'll do it as long as we enjoy it. And, um, you know, as long as, I mean, look, I think the phone's going to be ringing for a lot of years for us to go out and keep doing it. Yeah, I can imagine. But when you're putting together the new Megadeth album, do you think of the physicality of, Hey man, we're going to have to go on the road for 200 dates and play that. So maybe we should step it. I mean, does that come into play at all? And, and the music, 
Does no, it, no, okay. it, it doesn't. <laughs> it does, because you know the reality of it is, it says Megadeth on it. It better melt your face off, you know. And there is no, there is no pulling it back, you know. It's like if you can't do it, then that's when, that's when it really is time to call it quits. Yeah, and hopefully that won't happen. So, um, where are we in the process of of the next new Megadeth? We're recording now. We spent all of 2018 just writing composing and then the last few months just putting things into folders and compiling them so we could actually start arranging because you know we've got four writers in the band and naturally dave is you know the chief composer and um you know he's really asked that it be a collaborative effort um and again look we've got things you know we live in four different cities and you know we were actually you know keep on in la i'm in in scottsdale and dave's in nashville so you know, it's not like it was when we were, you know, much younger when we all lived in the same city and we just drive rehearsal and, and cut, you know, rehearse and write a record over a couple of months and demo and all that. So, you know, some of those things have changed yet, you know, at the same time, we've all got families and wives and stuff that we do. And, you know, we, we, you know, I mean, dystopia was almost a three year tour, you know, so it, it, you, you need to have a little space. You got to have some time off the road. You need a little space away. And then, you know, when we get together, we, we hit it hard, you know, and we, and we work. So, you know, now we're in the recording phase. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's an interesting record because I think in the past, we've always sort of had little bits and pieces of leftover stuff laying around. And I, I gotta say, we cleaned the vault out by the time we got to dystopia, you know, we, any, and, and in fact, anything that we had on dystopia that we may have brought in you know, from previous years, by the time it made it to final on dystopia, it was a very new reworked version of that. So, you know, there really wasn't this, you know, we didn't have the luxury of going back and kind of pulling out old unused riffs and things. I mean, we really, this new record is all stuff from scratch. Which is good to hear. And, and the new, the, well, the new band members, they, they're not super new. They've, they've been there already a few years, yeah. but, but what energy do they bring? Do, do they have a voice in the process in terms of songwriting? Or is it like, listen, here's a drum beat I hear. Go figure this out. Here's the guitar riff. Like, how involved are they creatively in the process? Is it follow orders or is it bring stuff to the table? No, I think this, this lineup, we've found this kind of happy medium. You know, everybody knows their, their place when it's like, look, my job is just to just play to the song and let's, let's get this song done regardless of who wrote it. Let's really get in there and, and, and bring my best to this. Um, yet, you know, we went through this season, certainly this last year, where everybody was encouraged to bring new songs, new ideas, their thing to the table so that everybody gets to have a, a, a voice on this album. And sometimes, you know, for me, that's lyrically, sometimes it's musically. Kiko brings certainly an incredible level of, of musicality to, um, to the table. And, and, you know, Dirk, I mean, Dirk, you know, the thing that's cool about Dirk is, is he, he is a good writer. You know, he wrote a lot with soil work. He wrote, and that stuff, of course, being in a very heavy, very progressive genre, um, the blast beat stuff that he's known for largely creating that drum style, um, and being the leader of that, that genre, but also, um, he really gets the earlier Megadeth stuff. He gets Gar Samuelson, you know, he understands that. And, and Gar was a very peculiar drummer because he had this, this jazz fusion background, um, coupled with the brashness of, say, Keith Moon, you know, um, and that's what made Gar so unique 
And Dirk really gets that. And I think that's a, a piece of the Megadeth sound that it's been hard for us to get back to kind of tapping into that. You know, modern modern metal records, as you know, because you hear them all the time, a lot of times they're just, they're very sterile. They're, they're, they're digitized, they're pro-tooled to death, they're edited to be perfect. And as much as it sounds great because it's metal and it's machine gun staccato, thing that we all like it also sucks the the, the humanness out of it you know it's and got megadeth no heart it's, always, it's a, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and i think megadeth megadeth music is, has always been very heartfelt i think that's why it resonates with so many people in so many countries across so many cultures is because there's really a heart and soul to it and we don't want to lose that in the process of making really great records so, so talk to me then about, about both alt, adi, altitudes and attitude and Megadeth in terms of the process of making the records. How conscious are? Because how can I put it this way? Back in the day, Black Sabbath would go in the studio, and and literally nine days later, the album would be made. Do you overthink stuff? How much of this is just let the song be the song, and how much is okay? We've got all this technology. Let's make it perfect. Where do you sort of see yourself? Is it okay to let a mistake? onto the album because it, it adds character? Yeah, I mean, I think with, with Altitudes and Attitude, for sure, what you just described is exactly how we do it. You know, we, 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 we each brought ideas to the table, and then in the room, we both collaborated on certain things. There's kind of three sides to it. Frank's songs, my songs, and our songs. And when we work on each other's songs, you know, again, this is a very new, young experience with, with A&A. So it's all exploratory. There is no history, especially because it's not a thrash band. We're not, it, it doesn't sound anything like Anthrax or Megadeth. So it's not like we're bringing our previous bands uh, and our, even our experience into the studio. We're basically approaching it as a completely fresh, young, new uh, style. Um, so one of the fun things of that is just letting these things take its course. And, and it's when you do that, you, you sort of are always discovering, you know, something new in that process. I think, um, and I don't know how Anthrax does it, but I know certainly for Megadeth, you know, look, we've made a lot of records. We've had some huge hits. We had a couple of misses, you know? Um, and, you know, I think we found the, the misses are when we tried to explore things outside of what you would typically think of Megadeth. And I think that's where things like what, what Frank and I are doing is to really take those intentionally outside of our main bands. And I think that's a good thing because you can put a new name on it. You, it, ha, it intentionally has an entirely different process. It has an intentionally different outcome uh, to it. And, and, you know, that way when we're, I think inside of our main bands, we can be 100% full on, thrash uh musicians that that were required and expected to be inside of those bands so and so let me take you up on that you, you said that you know with megadeth you, there was a couple of misfires but aren't those over the year and over the over the years and over the career part of the process if you don't step outside once in a while you sort of forget who you are so and I, I'm probably going to refer to maybe Risk or The World Needs a Hero. Aren't they great at the end of the day that the fact that you had a chance to explore nif different sounds, lighter sounds, and then you can say, hey, wait a minute, Megadeth is this. We got to go back. We got this out. of You know, you have to get that stuff out of your system, right? Well, of course. Yeah, I, I'd say I'd, absolutely. And, I, and, you know, the thing of it is, is, you know, we're growing up at together at the same time, you know, and, and bands either grow together, they either grow or they go, you know? Um, 
and you have to be part of that. And, 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 you know, look, there's a few things you can control and, and even like particular risk and maybe the world needs a hero. You know, at the time we even got a little bit of flack for the euthanasia album because the tempo slowed down. There were these very big melodic sounding songs. Um, and, uh, you know, but at the time when we were making those records, we really felt in the moment, it felt right. It felt like the right thing to do. So all we can control is certainly playing and writing the best that we can and being cohesive. Once we put it out, man, it's completely out of your hands, you know, and, and I, I look like the euthanasia record times were a changing. I mean, you know, you can control that, that, which is from within, but you can't control that, which is from without. And in that day was Seattle. I mean, Seattle was upon us and MTV and radio formats and everything were changing to adapt to this new sound that was coming out of Seattle, which I, and I love the Seattle sound. I loved it. It was fresh. I, I remember there was a moment when we, we were in the, in the rehearsal room writing a, a song and we got to the usual obligatory insert guitar solo here, you know? And I remember I brought it up. I said, why do we have to have a solo? Like why? Just because that's the way it always is, you know what I mean? And, and it's funny that, you know, a genre from another city, you know, the Seattle sound, they came in and, and they didn't do that. They didn't necessarily have to have a guitar solo because that was not their thing, you know? And, and so I think every genre gets challenged, you know, I don't know about what, you know, what every 10 years or every right. five, six years, you know, something new comes along and it, and it upsets the apple cart. And, you know, that's what it's supposed to be, man. I mean, you know, change comes from, from the youth, man. You know, music has always been a young, liberal youthful thing as it should and and um as we get older uh especially i think those of us that have been fortunate enough to have bands you know that have survived all these years you know you really go back and you find the thing that really works and, and works internally works externally to your fans and um you know again i'll speak to what we're doing me and frank here without foods and attitude you know this is a moment for us to take these things intentionally outside of it because these things really don't have a home inside of Megadeth and Anthrax. And I think when you're clear on that, it actually makes it makes both of them better. Yeah, it does. And and I've always said, by the way, that grunge music doesn't have solos because the guys in the bands couldn't actually play one if they wanted to. Um, <laughs> that's just, you said that, not me. Yeah, that is correct. Mitch LaFon said that. So if anybody grabs this, it was me who said that. But let's let's be honest about that. And and by the way, for the record also, I like Euthanasia. And I, I like Risk. I think Crush Him and Enter the Arena and stuff were, were perfectly fun songs. Maybe Megadeth is not supposed to be fun. I don't know. Was, they were good. Um, where does this leave us with, with A&A in terms of the band? Because... Listen, you're going off on tour with with uh, Megadeth opening for Ozzy, and then there's going to be the Mega Cruise, and Anthrax is doing their thing. Is this a project where the album comes out, and there you go, folks? Or or is it in the schedule that, okay, September is going to be, you know, AA month, and then we'll take back to our bands, and then November? Like, is it sort of one and done or is it what's sort of the plan to keep this going through the year and through the other years? I think, you know, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly once Megadeth ramps up around a new album cycle, I mean, I, I pretty much shut everything else down, you know, because it, 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 it needs that much attention. You know, it's, it's, you know, you can't, uh, you know, you, you can't 
you know, kind of have your attentions divided, you know, into two things. And that's because when Megadeth ramps up, at least historically, we, you know, we ramp up and we go. I mean, it's four to six week tours and then a week or two off and then we're down to South America and then we're over to Europe. And I mean, we're hitting and there is no time for anything else, you know, but I'm always writing and I'm always composing. So, you know, these, you know, when you do have these, these little seasons of downtime, um, are great to, you know, to push out a few things like this. And I, and I think we live in a much different world. You know, if Megadeth was a brand new band and all of a sudden guys were off doing things like this on the side, it would look weird. It would look like, what the hell's the matter? Is the band breaking up, you know, but we've been around for a long time, you know, and, um, you know, it's, you know, we take our time making records now, our tours are extensive. And, and, and I think having little moments where, you know, the members can breathe a little bit outside of the band. And, and you know, it, it's, you know, the band's not breaking up. No one's going anywhere. Everything's fine. And, and it, and, and I think when you partner, like I did, like Frank and I did, you know, even within our genre, it shows strength. You know, I think it shows, you know, just a friendship. It shows, um, camaraderie. you know, a, 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 a camaraderie. Exactly. A camaraderie. I mean, the big four, we are so lucky, man. I, I can't think of another genre where the four, sort of founding pillars of the genre are still alive, still active, um, and still outworking. And, you know, there will come a day, obviously we know because Slayer's retiring at some point where that's not going to be that way anymore, you know, and we're at an age where, you know, people our age die. I mean, either from physical fitness or, you know, things happen, you know, and, and I realized, you know, when I, my brother passed away, he was a year and a half older than me and he died of, cancer uh about four years ago you know and, and young he was 51 and i just went you know what man if not now when you know and and life is meant to be lived it's meant to be lived forward it's meant to be lived boldly um and you know we've accomplished a lot in our in our careers with our bands and if these little moments like you know this month january february allow an opportunity for me and frank to push out a little creative endeavor, you know, that, you know, get, get it out the door before we both get busy with, with Anthrax and Megadeth. And you know what, man, that's it to me. It, it, it's kind of like a divine moment for that it was meant to happen right now. It really is. So talk to me though about all the other projects that are on your plate. You've got the coffee, you've got EMP, mm-hmm. you've got combat records, which of course is going to have sword on it. Um, mm-hmm. You've got the new book that you're, or the, in fact, to clarify on the book, is it a new, new book or is it just a, an addendum sort of continuation of the last one? And, oh, it is a brand new book. It is a brand new book. Okay. Um, and it's funny. We literally, we just finished it. We, uh, Jawbone is going to do the English uh, translations for it. So that'll be coming out this, this coming summer. Um, but it's, it's an incredible book. Um, it, 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 we, you know, it's funny how it started largely around sort of the, like you say, I call them sort of the Ellison industries of, you know, coffee, the label, you know, these, these things that have come along in my life here in recent years. And it also was coupled back with sort of a, a, a throwback into, um, me connecting back into my hometown of Jackson, Minnesota. Um, and that also largely through the coffee business. Um, and as we went through the story and especially once the combat records thing came into play, you know, there's a period of time in the earliest years of Megadeth um, that have never really been told because there was no MTV. I mean, very little, we were on MTV of course, but, but it wasn't like it, like it was by 1990 in the Rust and Peace era, 
that story's largely been told because of the media that we had. And we were on MTV and, you know, we were, we were, you know, we were, you know, pretty large and in charge. But the 80s and the earliest days and the founding, it's like, these are just sort of clippings from magazines <laughs> from back in that day. So I think in this book, um, and I actually look forward to, you know, hopefully you and I talking about it when the book comes out this oh, summer, because absolutely. I think you'll find it a fast, I think you'll find it a fascinating read. As I look back on it and the people that we got to contribute to it and be part of it, it it's, it's, it is the quintessential David Ellison, and I think even Megadeth, uh, uh, you know, historical book. And, you know, Dave always referenced me as the, as the ambassador and the keeper of the facts. And it's, you know, and I've, I've been a guy who stayed in touch with a lot of people that, that were there, you know, and, and were part of it. And I think, I think the readers are going to just really, really love this book. Oh, I can't wait. So, so I'll ask you more questions about that when it comes out. We'll do, like you said, a whole interview based around the book. Um, but just before yep. we just before we wrap up, we're getting up to the the half hour mark. The the mega cruise. Talk to me about that. That'll be sort of your first experience, or at least your first experience as the headliner. Is it is sort of an exciting new thing. I mean, we we've had those monsters of rock cruises and the kiss cruises, and it really is sort of the ultimate fan experience, right? It really is. I mean, the first, my first experience on a cruise was, um, the motorhead motorboat. Um, and it, you know, through that is where metal legions formed. Um, and we just had just an awesome time, man. And I, I did one family cruise before that and absolutely hated it. In fact, my whole family were just like, Oh my God, this is terrible. Get us off the boat. <laughs> and what I realized about it is, you know, we went through some stormy weather, which that wasn't very fun. But, you know, a lot of it is, is these rock and roll cruises, you're around your people. It's our tribe, you know? And I realized when I was on the motorboat uh, cruise, I'm there with my friends. We're, we're playing some tunes and everybody's just having a great time. It just so happens we're on a boat, you know, floating, you know, across the ocean <laughs> while we're doing it. And so I've had great fun, you know, ship rocks, uh, you know, done a few times and, you know, it's really, I, I've just really enjoyed it. So, you know, one day we talked on the bus. I'll never forget. We were driving from Casper, Wyoming, down to Las Vegas um, on a tour. This was, gosh, at least two years ago. And we sat up in the front lounge of the bus over coffee, like any good rock man would. And uh, me and Dave and Kiko, um, especially the three of us, we were up early one morning and we we're just sitting up there chatting about, about, you know, new ideas. And out of that is where the Megadeth boot camp idea came out of that, um, and, and doing a cruise. And, you know, it's, I think it's, you know, to sail out of the West, I've never done a cruise off the West. I know they, you know, there's like kind of hip hop and, you know, like EDM kind of cruises and stuff go out of there, but most of the rock cruises tend to kind of go off to the uh, East coast. So it'll be because fun. East coast is metal. Lineup. <laughs> well, I guess so. But, hey, I don't know. You started Megadeth on the West Coast, so maybe I don't know. Maybe uh, the West Coast is metal too. Well, but right. you know, I think yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of ironic. Megadeth formed in L.A. and the cruise is going out of the L.A. area. So I think there's kind of a, a cool historical reference, you know, for that. And 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 this one is very much. This is, I think, the first full-on really thrash cruise, which I think you know speaks well to the genre. Yeah, it really does. And uh, we'll finish with this. You've had. Ace on your album, you opened for the Scorpions, 
uh, now opening for Ozzy. I mean, honestly, and, and you're in Megadeth. You are living a charmed life, let me tell you. Um, but quickly, opening Thank for Ozzy. Yeah, honestly, uh, and you're speaking to me. What, what a what a what a trio. Um, <laughs> no, perfect. but uh, but you're you're here in uh, Montreal on uh, June 18th, and of course, all over North America all summer. Just talk to me about opening for Ozzy. I mean, first of all, here you are. It's 2019. And Megadeth and Ozzy are on a tour together, which, you know, had you told somebody that in 1985, you would have said, well, I'll be dead by then. But here you are. Um, (laughs) Just talk to me about that experience and an opening for for, you know, the man, for the lack of a better word. Well, I think it's look, it's great. We did a big Latin America tour in 2014, Black Sabbath and Megadeth. And um, we've obviously that's kind of our, our crown jewel down there in Latin America for our you know big arenas and stadiums and stuff that we play. I don't think Black Sabbath had ever been down there before. So that was a cool thing. And we got a lot of good hang time with the guys and just just kind of being buddies, you know, and and um, which which I thought was was cool. Um we have actually done some stadium shows with Ozzy uh, under the Monsters of Rock moniker back in the late uh, 90s down in South America. So um, we played with, I mean, in 98, we did OzFest, um, kind of an odd OzFest, too, because Ozzy was the headliner. Then it was Tool, who were brand new, then Megadeth, and we were kind of the, you know, industry standard. And then before us was Limp Biscuit. And I mean, it was a very bizarre moment. You know, that was one of those bizarre moments in music, just like what I talked about Seattle earlier. The late nineties were weird, you know, because oh, yeah. we stood there, planted our feet legs and head banged and everyone around us was going jump, 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 you know, doing the hip hop thing. You know, so it was a, it was a weird moment. And, um, um, but you know, so we, we've done a lot with Ozzy, you know, over the years. And, and I think, you know, now, um, you know, I think, especially since that Sabbath tour that we did, you know, in 2014, I think now to transition over to Ozzy Megadeth is, is it, it's a good bill, man. I, I think it's selling great. Um, I, I, people everywhere that I talk to have their tickets already They're They can't wait to see it. Ozzy's, you know, uh, um, you know, one, one of his, certainly his final runs around the, the world that he's going to do. And, you know, it's, it's certainly a privilege and honor for us to be on it with him. Yeah, it really is. And, and it'll be a spectacular show. I, I cannot wait. And of course, if there's anything you need while you're in town, just let me know. I'll happy to do whatever you need, drive you around, whatever, uh, as always. Uh, Perfect. Go get some coffee. Go, yeah. Hey, there's some great. Hey, Montreal. <laughs> you know, you can say a lot of things about the cold and blah blah blah, but uh, we've got some great food. We have got great food up. You sure place. do. So you sure do. Yeah, and, we've and, we've been we've been hitting that area for a lot of years. You know, I love it up there. It's super. It's right in the, especially in the summer. You know, the summers is great up there. Right summers here. are great. Have you ever, by the way, and and this is not really interview fodder, but have you hit? The Notre Dame Basilica or the the, uh, the the Notre Dame Church up here, because that is spectacular, just architecturally to go in. And if you haven't seen that yet, you've got to see that. I have not. And you have actually mentioned that to me before about going up and see it. So, you know what? Maybe this summer I'm going to have to take you up on that. We're going to have to go do that. Yeah. You know what? It'll be my pleasure. I, I've taken other bands to see it. It's just it really it's breathtaking. It really is breathtaking. And and you can go back and tell the boys, hey, I visited the church in which Celine Dion got married. And so there you go. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. Always, a, always. Yeah, why not? Always a pleasure, sir. And of course, uh, altitudes and attitudes. 
new album is out now. It is, of course, called Get It Out, and they have gotten it out. Uh, Dave, always, always a pleasure. Thanks, Mitch. See you, man. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Dave, David Ellison of Megadeth, of course. Uh, the new band, new album with Frank Bello is out now. Do go check that out and uh, let us get over to J.J. French. But, uh, you know, you know, just real quick, Alan, before we get to J.J., I will I'll say this. Uh, we were talking at the beginning how I like the fact that it wasn't shilling. We're just having a natural conversation that talks about kiss and copyright and politicians in Australia. And all. Uh, another interview that I have coming up in the next little bit is with writer Jim Valance, um, who wrote all kinds of stuff for, uh, you know, Dave Clark five, the birds, the band, Bob Dylan, kiss the who Brian Adams, uh, uh, Michael Buble, um, uh, what's a uh, Johnny Holiday? You're a songwriter. You obviously must have heard of Jim Valance, right? You, you know, I mean, that's a name, right? Uh, absolutely. In fact, in my particular consciousness, I tend to think that, um, oh, and uh, remind me, what was the name of the, oh, Adams was the guy he wrote for? Him and Brian Adams. Well, Brian let's put Adams, it, let, let me put it this anyway. way. Jim Valance wrote <laughs> Summer of 69, yeah, but in my consciousness, I tended to look at, um, at Valance as at least equal to Brian in terms of the material. Um, I, I got the sense that he was, he was a quality writer uh, and an interesting writer and an interesting voice. And absolutely. And he also, you know, when Aerosmith came off of Done With Mirrors and they were getting all clean and Tim Collins was having them work, you know, the rehab and stuff like that, they needed that next big album, which ended up being Permanent Vacation. And, of course, who wrote some, if not all, of the songs on that or helped co-write? Well, Jim Valance. So, you know, his 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 skill. Anyway, anyway. Jim is coming up in a couple of weeks. We did the interview. It's uh, just under an hour long, and it's just an incredible discussion on how you craft a song, what makes a song good, um, the impact of some songs like Brian Adams' Summer of 69, which I think whether you're a Metallica fan or a Madonna fan or you like Jimi Hendrix, at some point you've heard Summer of 69 on MTV or the radio and you've gone Oh, you know, and your your foot has tapped along to it. And you might even say, I hate Brian Adams, but you've heard that and you go, yeah, it's a good song. So I've got him coming up. But uh, J.J. French, uh, or as we say here, J.J. Le Français. Um, that, that's how we call him in Quebec. He's Le Français. You heard that discussion. What's sort of your take on copyright? Because we do talk about copyright and the rights of, of uh, the holders and how do you get it. What's sort of your take on people just taking your song and turning it into a political ad or using it on in a commercial? What's what's sort of your view on all that? Well, you asked you asked me two questions there, and, and the first question I can I can deal with very quickly, and that is that I think that it is only appropriate that copyrights be returned to artists um, after a certain period of time. Um, I find it absolutely abhorrent that record company contracts are built from the perspective of uh, 
taking a gamble on a talent and looking for the lion's share of the return. But I think that once an act has established themselves and established an audience, um, at some point, uh, the artist should be rewarded. And for example, for a band to be on, say, 12% royalty, uh, you know, 20, 25 years later, and the label is still taking the lion's share of the income, I think is absolute theft. And the other question you asked was, remind me. Well, just simply, what should oh, be the politicians? Politicians Pol- just taking the out. Poli- politicians. I mean, good God. I mean, you know, if if ever if ever a word should be considered vulgar, I think it's now becoming politician. Um, I have a very dim view of watching Donald Trump at some um, rally where he's spouting his dishonesties. And as he leaves the stage, they play the Rolling Stones as if the Rolling Stones endorse him. Um, And it's disingenuous to say, oh, well, the venue pay ASCAP and BMI, so we have the right to play some music as people are leaving. These people know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to make Trump look cool and imply that Mick Jagger is on his side. And that is utter bullshit. Right. To be fair, though, it is systematic of the entire system, whether you're Trump or Clinton or Democratic or Republican or in Canada, liberal or conservative. Uh, everybody does it and everybody plays these songs. We are the champions. We're not going to take it, uh, you know, money for nothing. You know, they all they all play something that says, hey, let's whip up the fan. So so both sides of the aisle or you know in canada we have 87 sides of the aisle because there's so many different parties but they all sort of do it and and is it legitimate that if you've paid the ascap or the venue has paid the license that you should be able to play any song during any like whether it's it's uh, you know line dancing marathon or a politician or you know a reunion of the bridge club if the venue pays don't they have the right Legally, they have the right, but do they have the moral honesty to do it? And we know exactly what they're doing. They're trying to associate certain individuals, right. be it a Springsteen or whomever, as being associated with their political viewpoint. And I think it is thoroughly dishonest, and they know they're being dishonest. And I would suggest, hey, if you want to play some music, go into the public domain and play some Bach, play some <laughs> Schubert, play some Tchaikovsky. It's in the public domain. But don't try and associate yourself with the political viewpoints of certain artists. I think it's thoroughly dishonest. Yeah, true. Play play Happy Birthday just over and over and over. But anyway, we, we get into all this copyright discussion with JJ. And, of course, we don't, we don't just do copyright because that would be very dry. But we talk about his uh, tenure, and I'll call it a tenure, with Kiss, he, he talks about spending two weeks rehearsing and playing and why he got in and couldn't or, you know, why he got to, to play with them for two weeks, why he ended up not getting the gig, why Ace Fraley did. And it's a fascinating discussion. So, uh, you know what? Let's just get to it. Without further ado, here is the one and only J.J. Le Français. 
JJ French of Twisted Sister. We are speaking with Twisted Sister guitarist JJ French. JJ, always, always a great pleasure to talk to you. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Mitch. How's everything in the Great White North? You guys get snow yet? We haven't had any snow in New York yet. Well, to be to be upfront and frank, we we have had snow that that stayed on the ground essentially since. Uh, what are we here? It would be January. <laughs> no, but it, no, not last year. It, it came. It came right after New Year, so somewhere around January fifth or fourth or fifth, it started snowing and it, it stayed. But no, we were we were on grass through Christmas, which was uh, interesting and somewhat peculiar, to, especially to have heavy, heavy rainstorms in the middle of December. It's like, oh, okay, that's that's different. Anyway, um, on. January 3rd, uh, I took to my socials and I posted a little note about how KISS had open auditions uh, in uh, 1973, January 3rd, 1973. And, and you know, I, I took a picture of Ace Fraley's book that said, went for auditions. And then I, I added the little note, included uh, auditions with Bob Kulik and J.J. French, yourself, and you phoned me and said, well, that's not exactly the story. So let, let me let me get caught up. What is, because we've heard for years and years and years about the story of J.J. French and Kiss. What What is your recollection? Was it January of 1973? Absolutely not. And, and uh, all due respect to Ace, who's, you know, legendary, and I was just with him a couple of weeks ago in Chicago, uh, doing autograph session with him. Um, we pose for pictures. I'll, I, I think I have it somewhere. I'll send you a shot of Ace coming over to me and Eddie Ojeda and the three of us standing there, you know, on, uh, no, it, it, I don't understand Ace's timeline. I mean, with all due respect to Ace and we all know his legendary stories of his partying, this may be an example of when you just don't remember, uh, the facts, because as you know, I was straight. You know, so I mean, I know exactly what happened and the timeline of it all, and it wasn't that at all. By January, I mean, forget January of '73. Kiss was as completely solid as a four-piece as early as October of '72. And wow. um, would you like me to take you through the timeline of how I know that? Yes, I'd I'd love to because I I mean, yesterday when we spoke on the phone, you said that you had spent two weeks rehearsing with Kiss, which is. As a longtime Kiss fan, going back almost almost fifty years at this point, uh, well, forty five at least, you go, whoa, 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 two weeks? Okay, talk to me. <laughs> okay, so and by the way, we're not talking about two consecutive like fourteen days. It just means over a period of a couple of weeks. So here's how it went down: in uh, late May of seventy two, uh, I was uh, in my apartment building in New York. I was babysitting for an attorney named Peter Thal a very well-known music industry attorney. And I think he used to hear me play guitar out the window because I used to buy, you know, used to play guitar in, in my apartment building and blast it all over the neighborhood. And everybody knew that it was me playing. So I kind of was legendary. I was known for it. Uh, and he says to me in the elevator one day, and I was babysitting for his kid. He had a daughter, Emily, at the time, and I would occasionally babysit for him um, as a neighbor. You know, I was young enough, I just was around, and so I babysit. So he says to me, are you looking for a band? And I said, yeah, I actually am looking for a band. He goes, well, I'm representing an attorney named Ron Johnson who's produced a band, and they're looking uh, for a guitar player. I went, great. So they gave my number, I guess, to uh, Gene, who called me and said, I understand that, uh, you know, you're a Led Zeppelin fan, et cetera, et cetera, and um, 
we're looking for a guitar player. Are you interested? And I went, sure. I mean, I was chopping at the bit. I was 19 years old at the time. I was chopping at the bit. So they, I said, yeah. And they said, can we see you play? And ironically enough, that first week of June, I was jamming with a band in the New York's Greenwich Village. Uh, the band was called Scout. Uh, ironically, the drummer of Scout was Don Perry, who went on to be Jethro Tull's drummer for 20, wow. 25 years. But, you know, we're both 20, you know, we're both 19 year old kids at the time. All right. So uh, I go and I and I'm playing and Gene and Paul show up and uh, they're standing at the back of the church. And I walk off the stage. I walk to the back and they introduce themselves as Stan and Gene. They tell me that, um, you know, that uh, they're changing their name, that they have a band called Wicked Lester, that the band uh, sounds like Looking Glass uh, and they're going to change it to this other thing. They asked me if I'd ever heard of Slade. And at that moment, I had started to hear Slade. You know, this was the, there was a whole thing happening in England at that time, and Slade was leading the charge um, along with the glam metal bands. And of course, you know, that Slade, Sweet, um, Bowie, uh, T-Rex, all that stuff. And, uh, and, and I was still in my kind of Allman Brothers Grateful Dead mode. I looked like a member of the Allman Brothers at the time, really long, you know, curly hair, and very hippie-ish. And they were saying, well, they're going to like follow in the lines of Slade. And I didn't exactly know too much about Slade, but I said, I, you know, I'm down for it. So they said, well, come and rehearse with us. And we'd like you to even come down to a, a session with our band. But you can't tell the guys in the band that, um, that they're being replaced because they don't know they're being replaced. So you're coming down as a friend, you know. So I think I vaguely remember going down to the recording studio or going down to rehearsal and watching them play basically under the guise of being a friend. And so I got an idea of what they were doing. And then we jammed, we jammed several, you know, a couple of times over a couple of weeks. That's all it was. It wasn't like a two week rehearsal. It was over the course of a couple of weeks, they called me up. I'd go down and jam with, 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 with Gene and Paul. And, and, and um, I believe Peter was already recruited at that time. I could be wrong. Um, I could be wrong. But the bottom line was um, was uh, that after a couple of weeks, I never heard from him. And I don't think that I thought I was good enough anyway, because I don't remember calling him up and asking, what do you think? You know, am I in or out? Because I just think that's that sounded kind of lame. Let's just say that whatever happened, happened, and they didn't call back or whatever, and I went fine. And I joined a, an Allman Brothers cover band and <laughs> moved into a hippie commune um, in uh, Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania for the summer while we were rehearsing this uh, Allman Brothers cover band. Uh, and then um, I come back to New York in September and um, I get a subscription to Fusion magazine and with it, a Bowie album, a Lou Reed album, Moth the Hoople album, and they changed my life. I looked at this. I looked at the album covers. I opened up the article in Fusion magazine, saw Mick Ronson and David Bowie, and my mind was just blown. I mean, my mind was blown about the same way that it was when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Uh, Bowie was like, when I, people say to me, how influential was Bowie? I say he was like the, the Beatles were the stage one Saturn rocket, and Bowie was the booster rocket. That's how I describe it in my life. Uh, it altered my life. And I said, ah, this is where I'm going. So um, I cut my hair off, dyed it blonde like Mick Ronson, and wanted to join a glitter band. I was looking in the newspapers and saw this phone number. I called it. It was still Gene's number. They were still advertising for guitar players. This is September. And uh, he says to me, 
hey, man, no, listen, it's cool, uh, but we got a guy. His name is Paul. We just hired him. He's great, Paul Fraley. I went, oh, cool. He said, you know what? As soon as we're ready to go, I'd like you to come down to a rehearsal and see our new band. And I went, fantastic. And they called me a couple of weeks later. So it would be either late September, early October. Of 1972. 72. Right. It was, yeah, it was warm out. I remember very distinctly because when I went down, they were all hanging outside their loft. Their loft was on 23rd Street, um, where Broadway and Fifth Avenue meet in Manhattan. And uh, that building where the loft was is no longer there. It's an apartment building. They were all hanging out. They were wearing, you know, jeans and T-shirts and light leather jackets. It was warm out. It was the fall. And uh, they introduced me to Paul and Peter, and they went upstairs, and they had their gear set up with Marshall amplifiers. I remember I was very impressed because most American bands did not use Marshalls. Marshalls was a very English thing, but this followed exactly to what Gene was saying, which was they wanted to emulate Slade, which was a very loud, heavy British pop band. I, you know, they were metal before metal was called metal but extremely heavy duty and re you know, really loud and very, very uh, uh, catchy songs. And they played, they proceeded to play for, for um, Ron Johnson, the producer, and me and a friend of mine named Tommy Jahelka, who was a studio builder who I brought with me, who's a friend of mine, um, proceeded to play basically the whole Kiss album except Kissified now, you know, the Wicked Lester record, except yeah. Heavy. And, uh, and Ace was great. And I, I said to myself, man, that's why I'm not a guitar player, because Ace was better than me. I was very impressed at their guitar tones, at everything. Like, it was a realized, it was a fully realized concept. I said, these guys are really smart, and they really focused. And Gene was saying to Ron, uh, and basically me, because, you know, we're basically sitting there, right? It's only us and this guy, Tommy Jahelka. Uh, and he's basically saying, you know, this is the thing. This is what we're doing. This is why Wicked Lester's not functioning. This is why we're changing it. And they had just changed their name to Kiss because they had behind them like a bed sheet with the logo. And, and I understand that Ace created that logo. So obviously he'd been in the band already. Logo was set. The sheet was behind him. And they played the songs. And I walked out of the loft thinking, man, that's, that's kind of where I want to go. You know, that, that's how I want to do it. Um, they're right on. They were incredible. I was blown away by them. And, uh, and that was in October of 72. So Ace was in the band. Hate to tell anybody, he was in the band. Uh, I auditioned for the band that became Twisted Sister late December of 1972 and was hired on the spot. And we officially started rehearsing Twisted, but we were still called Silver Star at the time. Uh, the first week of January. So uh, I moved to New Jersey that first week and joined the band that became Twisted. So that's your timeline. That is your actual accurate timeline. So I never played with those guys after the jamming we did in June, and I saw them fully functional with Ace and Peter in October in the loft as a fully formed band. Of 1972. So the, so the January 73 is, is inaccurate then? Completely inaccurate. Okay. One hundred percent inaccurate. I don't understand why one would want to revise themselves. Now, could it be that Gene and Paul didn't tell Ace that he was an official member <laughs> until January? I, 
you know, because I wasn't there, okay? When I heard them perform their songs, I heard them perform their songs as what I was, as it was uh, told to me was the band. You know, maybe they said to Ace, thank you, you're great, we still have other guys to rehearse. You know, I'm, I wasn't privy to that. I have no idea what happened after I left the loft in October of 72, but what I saw in 72 was uh, Gene Paul, Ace Peter, playing songs that are Kiss, in a fully formed Kiss, with their logo behind them. That's what I can tell you is fact. But with makeup and costumes? No, they no. had no makeup and costumes, none. Okay, so they were just no, they, they t-shirt were still, and jeans I, I, or whatever. Yeah, they were wearing t-shirts and jeans, but they were, you know, they were already affecting that English rocker look, you know, with platform shoes. Uh, platforms had started a year before in England. I was in England in '71 and bought my first pair of platforms, quarter-inch snakeskin, um, purple platform shoes. So by that point, um, the store called Aerosmith opened in New York, believe it or not, called Aerosmith. It was a shoe store where they sold platform shoes, and it was spelled like the band Aerosmith. It was A-E-R-O. Okay. Um, do you um, think Aerosmith took their name from a shoe store? I have no idea, but there was a shoe store called Aerosmith before I heard of Aerosmith. Oh, that's hilarious. And they sold platform shoes, and there was a store called Ian's, and Ian's um, was a glam clothing store that supplied the clothing for the dolls. So remember, the dolls were also... Um, looking for a record deal in the fall of 72 and we're playing um, every Sunday night at the Mercer Arts Center. Of course, I attended many of those shows uh, because I had personal friends who were friends of the Dolls and the Dolls used to rehearse in a rehearsal studio called Talent Recon, which was on 38th Street and 8th Avenue. When I used to just jam with my friends occasionally in the city, we would jam at this place called Talent Recon. Talent Recon was run by a guy called Satan because he looked just like Satan. And the Dolls used to be there um, rehearsing the dolls. I used to run into them in the hallway and I knew Johnny Thunders um, from the fountain, Central Park fountain, because he used to hang out there and kind of buy drugs. So I kind of, and, and I knew him from the Lower East Side. I knew him from there. So we used to like acknowledge each other's existence. And then I saw that, you know, I mean, he was always affected by Keith Richards and that whole kind of look. And uh, so that's where it all kind of crossed together. And so I'm really not sure I understand exactly why this timeline was confusing for Ace, because it shouldn't have been confusing for Ace. It is really clear. Unless, of course, after I left the loft in October, they did not formally hire him until January, which kind of doesn't make sense. And the reason why that doesn't make sense is because in the March 73 issue of Roxene magazine, where the dolls were on the cover... Twisted Sister and Kiss had our publicity photos in that issue. And that issue, if you know print media, and you, of course, know print media, yeah. is always runs with a three-month head lead time. Yeah, especially back then, Which, three, three, four months sometimes. Yeah, so if it was the March issue, if, if that was the March um, newsstand issue, which came out in October, or excuse me, which came out in, in a month early, right, because they're always a month ahead, Right. of the date, which means it came out in February. It means it was printed in February if it was, it was a March headline. That means it went to bed at the latest, absolute latest, mid-January, all right, at the latest. Um, uh, but that would still make no sense. I mean, 
Yeah, and especially you know, with the holidays, it probably was a December December bed sh- uh, to bed in December. Yeah, and, and the, the strange thing is, I mean, Twisted took its publicity photos that first week in January. We took them, and they wound up in the March issue. Uh, Kiss was in the March issue, but I don't know the date of the picture that is in the March issue, except here's the interesting thing. They're in makeup in that photo. Uh, and they were not in makeup when I saw them in October. Uh, but the idea that they, uh, that, 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 that me or Tommy or somehow anybody else could have been auditioning in January is makes no sense. Right. Yeah. See, um, uh, where was I going to say here? Uh, let me just move on from, from the kiss story for a second here. Uh, Clive Palmer, uh, an Australian politician has, usurped one of your greatest hits we're not going to take it uh talk to me a little bit about that because it's been in the news recently and i have to say uh what a ballsy thing just to grab a song change the lyrics throw it up on in a commercial and think nobody would notice they're in america they're not going to notice what's going on in australia yeah well let's say before we discuss clive palmer specifically and his politics Right. Let's talk about, in general, people taking advantage of bands and Twisted Sister in particular in yes. terms of our trademark, our name, our music, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, first of all, Twisted Sister, the logo, the name, is the, one of the most copied names in the world, and I have to go after people for protect my registration trademark all the time. So people think it's just you can just go do that. Now, the name Twisted Sister is such a great name. I understand why people try to steal it, but they try to steal it all the time. And I've busted clothing stores, restaurants, diners, food trucks, um, you name it. Yeah. And, and just Tru- before, before fans think that it's being, uh, you know, outrageous or, you know, hey, have a sense of humor. No, I mean, copyright law forces you to enforce your copyright because if you yeah, don't. You have to go. Yeah. If you yeah, don't. If you don't, you lose it. Right. You're saying to the world, ah, we don't care. And a court will say, well, listen, you never enforce it for 10 years and now you care. No. And they throw it out. So you have to. You have no choice but to. You absolutely have to. And it gives you no choice. You're 100 percent right. It's ridiculous. And when people go, oh, you're picking on these old ladies, you're picking on these people, you don't understand copyright law and registration and trademark protection law. You have to. You can't allow it to go on. I mean, I get these. And, they, and people who, who steal the trademark, they go, we never heard of the band. Oh, come on, please. There was a lawsuit that we had with Six Flags, the amusement park company, many years ago, who called a ride Twisted Sisters, and they claimed that, Twisted, that nobody would confuse Twisted Sister with Twisted Sisters. And I challenged that in court and won because I said you cannot find the words Twisted and Sister juxtaposed against each other the way Twisted Sister is in any literature prior to the band's registration in 1973. You can't find it. And back then there was no Google or Wikipedia, and they spent uh, three years trying to find Twisted and Sister in every publication in every language in the world. Couldn't find it. And eventually they withdrew because I said, uh, you may think that people don't confuse Twisted Sister with Twisted Sisters, but if you called your ride Led Zeppelins instead of Led Zeppelin, you damn straight people would conflate the two. So of course. I won that case. And that was the first time. Then we were we went after Urban Decay. We went after Harley Davidson threatened to, to use our name. I mean, this goes on and on and on and on. So let's say just for the record that when you, when you try to take somebody else's trademark, you have to go defend it. Now, that's the name of the band. Let's talk about the music. 
again, this guy, Clive Palmer, if we take away his politics, yes, just from a legal standpoint, what he did was illegal. It doesn't matter if you're left, right, doesn't matter, black, white, green, blue, I don't care. But if you take a song, you write the song, make a commercial of the song, and it's broadcast, um, uh, you are violating copyright law. So, again, regardless of what we think about him personally, which is another issue completely, he has broken the law. And because he broke the law, he is being sued by the rights holder of we're not going to take it, the rights holder's universal music uh, group. They are going to sue him for this. Now, I understand that he originally requested an application to apply for a license to rewrite the song. Now, let's just be clear about this. Re-recording songs is a perfectly legal thing to do so long as you obtain a compulsory license. Okay, number one. Re-recording a song, almost nobody's ever declined the right to re-record a song uh, as long as you pay the rights holders and you, and you get a license. However, he wanted to rewrite the song, and he requested that. And many times there are parodies of songs that are rewritten, but they get permission. You have to because you're using part of an already registered song. Well, he inquired, from what I understand, and chose to not file for an application, and he went on and just decided to do it, and he's a, supposedly a billionaire. I have no idea what the license fee would be. Let's just say the license fee was $10,000 for the sake of this conversation. I have no idea what it is. But he chose to not um, apply or pay, just went out and recorded it and released it commercially um, and bought uh, airtime on it and basically violated the law. Yeah, and I, and I, I happened to see the his version of it online, and it is awful. I mean, he, he bastardized the son, uh, the, the song. And now just, just talk to me about this parody angle. Cause we, you know, we have this, those morning zoo shows in the States and Howard Stern and all that. And they parody songs all the time. Uh, and, and copyright law is a little bit sort of on the side of parody. He, uh, from what I understand, Clive Palmer tries to argue, has tried to argue that it was parody and therefore out of the realm of regular copyright. Um, what's the stance on parody? Like, so when Howard Stern does a, a funny song, which he's done over the years, um, how is that different? I, I am assuming, again, I'm not a specialist in copyright law, but it's one thing to broadcast for no fee. You can make a statement, but he bought commercial time. He paid for the commercial exploitation. That's a complete different Okay, I got event. you. If Howard Stern has done it, you did not pay for that, okay? You're just hearing a broadcast of a song. Um, in this particular case, um, he, he recorded the song, changed the lyrics, and in, in so doing, by buying commercial time and playing it violated the copyright laws. And also, the copyright laws may be different from country to country. I don't know what the laws are in Australia. I, I know that libel laws are different in different countries. Copyright laws may be different. I do know that the owner of the copyright uh, believes that he violated their copyright laws because they have a Australian division and the Australian division is suing him. So if the Australian division of the rights holder, Universal, believes that it's illegal, then I'm assuming it's illegal. Yeah, and and I don't know copyright law in Australia and I can't pretend to, but, but from my experience is uh, 
you know, outside of North America or even Canada, copyright laws are very, very favorable to the artist and are very, very um, – you can't just sort of – grab something I, I know up here with the camera the canadian musical rights association you can't just do that so uh, i'm assuming australia has some very stringent laws and very uh, artist friendly laws so it it certainly was something um recently well I, let me let me let me also say something else too the danger of politicians usurping music whether they re-record it or not and using it is that it infers to the listener that the end user politician is being somehow supported by that artist. It's really important to know that um, that is not the case. When you hear a song on a radio show, when you hear a song, let's say, in a generic sports stadium that has the right to play these songs, let's say you're at a New York Yankees baseball game, right? Or you're at a Toronto Maple Leafs hockey game. And, and you hear, we're not going to take it, or we will rock you by Queen, or we are the champions, or rock and roll by Gary Glitter, you know, any one of the 20 songs that they play incessantly in these places. You, as a listener, do not align the band with that team. You just know it's a song, okay? When a politician uses a song, the inference is, well, the band must support it. That's a very dangerous and slippery slope. Uh, this is why politicians in America who use these rock songs, even though by law they're allowed to, if they use them in places that pay performance rights fees, um, when the band finds out the politician's using it, they can't legally stop them because of the performance rights fees, but they humiliate them in the press. They do that because they want the politicians to stop using the song. They do that because they want the public to know that they do not endorse that candidate. And that happens all the time. I don't know if it happens in Canada. It happens in America all the time. Does it happen in Canada? It does. And, and I'm, by the way, I'm glad you, you mentioned that because when whenever I see a band, and I'm not going to start naming bands, but I'll say, uh, you know, uh, this politician, Trump used so-and-so song, and we want him to stop using it. I go, well, how? Like, on what grounds? And so you're right. There really is no grounds other than this sort of, media public, pressure public right. humiliation right because every time whoever the politician is would play that song then the the artist would come out and so it would just go against the message and against what they're doing but legally if if i was a politician and i wanted to play we're not going to take it at all my rallies there's really not much you can do as long as the location that you play right. in pays is performance legal. rights fees let's be really clear about this right correct okay correct. They must pay performance rights if that venue, not the politician, the venue. So let's just say um, Yankee Stadium pays ASCAP, BMI, and CSAC a blanket fee of whatever, 10000 20000 a year. I don't know what they pay. Um, they have access to 80 million songs. They can play 80 million songs. The fact they only play 10, that's their choice. But the fact is they have access to 80 million songs. And here's the real crazy part. When when these places play these songs, whether it's in a sports event or a political event, my friends will text me, ka-ching. They don't even understand how perverse this law is because the artist gets paid nothing. Did you know that, Mitch? 
I did because yeah, the it, artists it, paid it, zero. Right, it's a blanket fee, like you said. So let's say Yankee Stadium paid, and and the fee is probably even more than that. It's probably like a hundred and fifty or two hundred or what, whatever, whatever. But, it may be. it's different right. per venue. Right, and like you're saying, there's eight million songs or eighty million songs. Well, do the math. Divide that by a hundred and twenty. <laughs> there's not a lot of pennies left there, and so there, there's no shekels at the end of it for for Twisted or for Kiss or for well, Quiet no, no, Riot. Well, no, 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 no. Let me be clear. Yeah. It's it. The, the performer gets nothing by law. Do you understand that? Not by mathematics. Okay. By law. The artist gets paid zero. The same way that when a record is played on the radio, on a regular standard broadcast radio, every time it could be played 8 million times, the artist gets paid nothing, zero, by law. People do not understand it. The only people that make money are the writers. Big difference. Okay, be really clear. They get the writer gets paid or the publisher gets paid, but the artist gets paid nothing by law. Can I can I ask you a question about this real quick? Because yeah. a lot has been made in the press over the last couple of years about Spotify not playing, about Title not playing, and Pandora and YouTube and all that. But I've always thought, how how different is that from what AM radio was doing in the seventies? I mean, you could spend spin Elton John till the, the the sky went, you know, whatever, and he wasn't making different laws. Different laws apply to different technology. Okay, but but how? Why is the argument different? Why weren't artists in nineteen seventy saying, "Hey, you know, WPLJ spun my record uh, three hundred times, and I made not, like why? Why is it an argument now that it's Spotify and YouTube, and it wasn't an argument then? Well, first of all, Spotify and YouTube do pay. Right. Okay. Right. More than AM they radio. All, I mean, they pay. They pay next to nothing, but they pay. They right. pay minuscule pennies, but they pay. Different laws for different times. Artists have been screaming about non-payment. Uh, on on, uh, on um, public uh, publicly broadcast airwaves because that's what radio stations are they're they're considered public access stations okay since the law was enacted in the 40s they've been screaming about it they've been screaming to have it changed for years supposedly it's starting to change now there was a new law passed in America in which they in which um, they've at least altered the the um, They've, they've helped the writers more so than the performers. But performers have been screaming about it for years. In fact, I write a business column for Inc. Magazine. I wrote a story on Aretha Franklin that, you know, Respect was played 7 million times on the radio, and she's never received a penny for it. However, Otis Redding, who wrote the song, gets paid. And I don't care if you're Aretha Franklin, Paul McCartney, John Lennon, Twisted Sister, Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, doesn't matter, the Rolling Stones. Artists don't get paid. You only get paid as a writer. That's just the way the law was baked in. You're asking me, how could performers let them get away with it? Well, these are very powerful lobbies, these lobbies that control the stuff. And up to now, they've been successful in preventing um, the artists from getting paid. Now, when terrestrial radio evolved into satellite radio, that is new technology. Those laws were changed. And those laws are now covered by, by um, sound exchange. Are you familiar with sound exchange? Yes, I am. Okay, so sound exchange now pays the performer, not the writer. Do you know that? Yes. In fact, okay. I, I had a, that discussion with Brian Vollmer of Helix recently about how his band members are, are, were making more money than him, and he, didn't, he couldn't understand it because of sound yeah, exchange. So, so what happens is we make a nice income monthly from sound exchange. And sound exchange pays... 
the uh, artist and the copyright holder of the recording, but they don't pay the writer. Okay? So you could say the writer is going, hey, man, what about me? What about me? Well, you know, the tables are turned a little bit. So uh, sound exchange for every time, every time a satellite or digital broadcast of a Twisted Sister song happens, we get paid for every play. So when you're listening to us on TuneIn or on Sirius or on you know, or any one of them, a number of portals yep. that are trans, they're transmitted through digital broadcast, we do get paid. That's sound exchange. So that's an attempt to make the artist a little bit fairer. However, whatever they pay the artist, they pay the record label. So they divide that dollar up in half, and uh, the record label is a copyright holder. And so unless you own the copyright, half the money goes to the record label because of the copyright holder of the recording. Right. And and just by the way, back in the in the 80s and stuff, when, when it really was just the writers that were getting the cash – would you say that that was one of the reasons some of the bands that we loved back then would break up? Because you would see, you know, whatever, John Bon Jovi, and then there'd be, or, or Rat in particular, one guy driving around in Lamborghinis and four guys sort of in the old beat-up Honda going, hey, wait a minute, I- I'm in this band too. Why does this guy have a pool and a house in Martinique and, and I'm sitting in a crappy apartment in Jersey? Well, that has to do with the fact <clears throat> that, and let's not conflate publishing deals with performance rights societies. Right. All right. Um, while they are connected in that they both pay just the writer, the fact is uh, there's two sides to every band's arrangement. One is the publishing side and one is the recording side. If you're a writer, you get paid as a writer. If you're a performer, you get paid as a performer. Remember, before the Beatles, rarely did a recording artist write his own material. You, you, you are aware of that. Yeah, there was a whole so, staff, a team yeah. of uh, whatever. What do they call yeah, them? Yeah, histor- historic. I mean, you know, Elvis didn't write songs, and 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 Sinatra didn't write their songs. They made a lot of money for a lot of writers. They didn't write the songs. And and by the way, the 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 position that the radio stations always took, the reason why they were able to justify not paying the performer was they're saying, "Hey, man, don't you get it? We're giving you all this coverage. We're giving the public the access to hear you guys." And now you go off and make your money playing live, and you make your money selling records. We're not going to pay you for broadcasting it. We are your partner. We're helping you. The argument on the, on the artist side is you're selling commercial time based on the fact that people listen to your station because we're popular. <laughs> you should pay us. Up until now, they keep winning the argument, which is we're doing you a big favor, pal. We're broadcasting you. Now go off and sell your damn records and go off and make your money on, on tour. Don't come to us for your money. That's always like the traditional argument. But getting back to this issue with writers and performers, until the Beatles rarely did a uh, performer write their own material. Um, only since the Beatles did that become popular, and that changed the equation. So for many rock bands uh, that sell a lot of records and are popular, the people who write the songs, whether it's the one band member or two or whatever, make more money, and that's the name of the game. That's the mathematics game in the music business. It really is. And uh, just before I let you go, uh, I recently had Tom Worman on, and we talked about the Stay Hungry album. And he was mentioning that essentially he was mandated to make, you know, I don't want to call it a pop record, but sort of a a more radio-friendly, and I don't want to say softer, but I'm going to say softer sort of sound, just to, and yet, 
the band over the years has said, well, you know, we, we did Still Hungry, it needed to be more aggressive, but you can't argue with the fact that it is the, the, the highest selling record, it is very popular, we're not going to take it, I want to rock, the price, I mean, I don't know, did, did Tom really do that bad of a job? I Sounds to me like he did a great job. Uh, you know, we'll never know if another producer would have made it sound any heavier. We'll never True. know the answer. Right. We do know the album sold, I think, six million worldwide, which ain't ain't too shabby. We do know that we're not going to take it as the number one anthem in the world. I don't know if you know that. It's the most licensed metal song in history. Yes. Um, it's in more movies, soundtracks, TV shows, commercials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's the most widely known song. It's licensed by by the governments of countries. For, for governmental purposes, as a matter of fact, to, yes. to let's say, um, advertise an education program or something like that. It's used by unions around the world to defend their rights. And by the way, I just want to say about Clive in Australia, we don't um, support his politics. I don't think it would have made any difference to the rights holder in terms of his illegal use of the song. You either pay, uh, you, you, you do this legally or you don't. The fact that this guy is a ultra-right winger, the irony of him using the song and I will have to say, this is the biggest irony I have with all politicians. Do you know that in the history of the, word, the song, we're not going to take it as an anthem? Uh, it's been abused many, many times. And the abuse has always come from ultra-right-wing Republicans. Whereas the Democrats who wanted to use the song always called up and asked, how do we get the rights? Republicans never do. They've always used it illegally. We've busted them over and over again. And when we've called up and said, hey, you know, you're using the song, how, how do you, under what grounds? Like I would call up innocently and pretend I was just, you know, hey, man, I hear you using the song. And they'd go, oh, the first 20 seconds are free. Oh, uh, uh, we thought someone else called. Uh, oh, how do you get a license? You know, if this, they play this kind of ignorance game and then you bust them and they stop using it. The thing is they feel free to violate the law. These are the law and order candidates. Don't you find that rather ironic, man? that the law and order candidates are the ones that violate the law and our rights constantly, whereas the left-wingers who have ever uh, wanted to use it have always uh, gone through the correct pathways. Irony? Yes. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I do see that the law and order ones are the ones that seem to break the law and order yeah. when it comes to these things. Yes. Uh, the law and order guys break the law consistently, and I'm more uh, bemused by that than anything else. You know, what hypocrites they are. What unbelievable hypocrites they are that they just think they can take someone else's rights away. Anyway, that's just like a general thing. So this guy, Clive Palmer, is not a good guy. There's a lot of bad press on him in Australia. Um, but regardless of his positions, which we probably as a man would find abhorrent or despicable and would not agree with, he violated the law. So the license uh, holder is going after him. Yeah, um, and as as they should. I mean, your your rights have to be defended. That's the way the system is 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 set up. If you don't defend yeah. it, even if it's a mom and pop store, a court will say, "Well, listen, you're not interested in defending it, so too bad." Um, anyway, stay right stay now, hung. As far as Worman, yeah. let me just say, uh, Tom did the job he was supposed to do, and he did it well. There were problems in the yes. studio. He wrote about it in his book. I've certainly talked about it in interviews. There was a personality clash. It's not the first time producers and artists have had personality clashes. Okay. Agreed. I mean, I recently, I recently read uh, the book by Walter Yetnikoff about Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. Now, Quincy Jones arguably produced, you know, I mean, he produced Thriller, right? Biggest album in the history of the world. I mean, 100 million copies. Michael Jackson wanted his name taken off as producer, claimed that he didn't produce the record. 
claim that Michael produced the record, that Quincy was just there and was the right place at the right time. Now, you're talking about Quincy Jones, one of the most legendary producers of all time. You're talking about Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones, one of the great collaborative production teams of all time. You're talking about Michael Jackson calling the president of the label and saying, take his name off, he didn't produce the record. Well, you understand, Mitch, that this is a political hot potato and something that probably happened because of a personality conflict. Uh, Many artists think that they're the ones who do it. By the way, I'm not saying that they're not responsible for making great records, but um, it's always what have you done for me lately and who's the one who really did it. You know, people take credit all the time for things they didn't do and, 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 and blame people all the time. That's just an example. It happens all the time. But I've never heard the Beatles say that George Martin was not responsible for why they sounded the way they sounded. I've never heard that. Yeah. I've never heard the Rolling Stones deny Andrew Lou Goldham was responsible for the way they sounded on their first six or seven albums. I've never heard them say that Glenn Johns wasn't a great producer, but I've heard plenty of bands complain about their producers. And Lee did not get along with Werman. And, and, um, and, and, and so, but album, so be it. The album sounds great. I mean, it's, it's an all-time classic. It, yeah, the album, listen, it's established in people's heads. And this is how fans are with albums. Even if a band doesn't think its album sounds great, once the album has become part of their soundtrack of their life, that's what they care about. So Under the Blade, produced by Pete Way, didn't sound great. We remixed it to make it heavier, and yet our fans, the hardcore fans, always want the Pete Way version, even though we can't listen to it. So why does that happen, Mitch? Because you, and Mitch, you, like you, Mitch, are a fan, right? So you're Correct. a fan of a band. Correct. You love the band, you bought a record, you love that record. You play it to death. You know that record inside out. You know when it's been re-recorded. You know when it's a live version. You know if any nuance of that song is done. Then you read an interview with a band bitching about the record, and you as a consumer, what do you say? Don't, don't do care. that. Yeah. I, I yeah. love those songs love exactly. Right? Because, I, I mean, Kiss Crazy Nights, for example, is this sort of syrupy sweet album that, that I happen to really like. And I hear them badmouth it all the time, or I've seen people say, well, it's too this, it's too that. And the sin- I, I don't care. I like Crazy Crazy Nights just the way it is, so stop it. <laughs> you know? Because fans do not see it the same way artists. You know, I learned a long time ago as a baseball fan that baseball players don't see the game the way the baseball fan sees the game. Baseball fans see the game, team loses, fan wants to like commit suicide. Oh, my God, worst day in the world. Baseball players playing 160 games that year. His attitude is, tomorrow, I'll be better. Okay? He has a different perspective of it because he's there every day grinding it out, and so every day is like the next day, and there's always another day. Whereas a fan has just spent a bunch of money for that afternoon or that evening, and it wasn't satisfying for that fan. So we as creators need to be mindful of the consumer (laughs) And what the consumer sees, because we see things differently. However, we're all human, and we're all allowed to have our different interpretations of things. So we didn't particularly believe that Stay Hungry sounded the way it should. Certainly is not as heavy as Twisted Sister is. And Mitch, you as a fan know there's a huge difference between the way our records sound and the way Twisted is live, correct? Oh, absolutely. And and by the way, that applies to a lot of bands. I mean, you look at yeah. you, you look at Kiss, you look... I'll even going to go Toto, since you mentioned Michael Jackson's Thriller, and, and that's essentially Michael Jackson singing for Toto on that album. Even them live, it, it's it's a very different experience. And that's why there are some bands that you just don't get until you get that live album, you know, Humble Pie, uh, Kiss Alive. You, you, you had all these studio albums and you go, 
hmm, all right. And then the, the those live albums come out and you go, oh, that's what Humble Pie is. Oh, that's what Kiss is. And same thing mm-hmm. with Twisted, you know. And uh, yeah. listen, as a fan, I'll say this. I'm happy that you didn't like it because then we got Still Hungry, which I guess was 2004, something like that. Four. Yeah, right. so, so we got two versions of the albums to love and adore. I'm perfectly fine with that. In fact, let's let's make it a third version. Well, I mean, I, I'm let's go. I mean, I'm down with that. So, well, you're right. We reimagined it the way we want to hear it. If you're a big fan, you listen. You know, what's all this controversy about the Beatles remixes by Giles Martin? You know, there's a big controversy. He remixed Sgt. Pepper. He remixed the White Album. There's some Luddite Beatle fans. And by the way, I'm about as uh, entrenched in Beatle world as possible. I write a Beatle column for Goldmine magazine called Now We're 64. I interviewed Charles Martin recently. I'm kind of, I'm right in that whole pocket. I get it. I don't get why people are so freaked out about it. I mean, it really kind of, it's like, I'll never listen to it. I like the original. Okay, I get it. And you know what? It's a free country. If you want to listen to the original, listen to the original. All right? But if you want, but here's the irony of all that stuff. This is really the most ironic part. The people deeply offended that the Beatles album was remixed. If those remixes were never official, but they were bootlegged, everybody would be passing around going, hey, man, check this out. Of course. I have a bootleg. Of course. The engineers remixed it, man. Check it out. And that would just be like a collector's item. And people would be passing it around saying, yeah, man, I hear more bass. Hey, man, I hear this guitar part. Hey, I didn't know that they had an extra keyboard or an extra vocal. But because it's officially done, all of a sudden, it's like a bad idea. All of a sudden, like, it runs and it slaps you in the face of what you love. You know, come on, really. I mean, to say that life is short is a bad cliche in this case, but it really is. If you don't like it, don't listen to it. I happen to love the remix of Sgt. Pepper. I love the remix of the White Album. I love the originals. I love the remixes. I hear things I didn't hear before. I hear, yes, it's different. It's a different experience. I don't know, Mitch. Let me ask you this question. What do you think of the top five most, your top five most played records in your life? What would they be? In my life, wow. Yeah. Um, hmm. Probably "Appetite for Destruction" from Guns okay. N' Roses. Probably right. "Slippery When Wet" from okay. Bon Jovi. Right. Uh, let me see. Um, probably the very, very first Kiss album, "Kiss Kiss." I mean, you know, here we are approaching rapidly fifty years later, and and right. those songs are still the ones that you'll go hear in a concert. So they obviously right. are magical. What would be the other ones? Um, boy. Uh, maybe an ACDC or a Sabbath record in there somewhere, maybe? No, in fact, I am I, I love ACDC, and, I, and I, when they come on the radio and stuff, I'll listen to it. But I never got into buying their albums, believe it or not. I've been, given, I've been given a lot of their albums. Uh, right. Sabbath, of course, I've bought everything because I, I love Sabbath. And right. this might sound like blasphemy, but I actually really like those Tony Martin uh, albums on Sabbath. To be, but yeah, well, I actually love I actually love Dio's Sabbath. <laughs> yeah, Dio's Sabbath is great. And okay, so let me, you know, maybe uh, Def Leppard High and Dry, which I think is their best album. And and I know folks are oh no, Pyromania, Hysteria, no High and Dry. Um, yeah, so 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 those ones, those are my my much loved albums, and and these days, of course, um, Foreigner Four. I, I've been in a rabbit hole of Foreigner for the last six months, so right, a lot of Foreigner, and, and Twisted gets it gets in the top ten because uh, Stay Hungry was such. You know what 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 really got me with was Twisted. By the way, it wasn't the videos for We're Not Gonna Take It and I Want to Rock. It was the price uh, because that. 
at the time when it came out was a little bit different to what at least much music was playing. I don't know about MTV. Just to see the, this glammed up band doing this, um, do we want to call it a ballad? I, I hate to say that Twisted did ballad, but that was like, oh, okay. That's it. You know, I want to rock. We're not great song, but the price is the one where I went, oh, okay. This band, this band is more than just, you know, funny videos. Well, you know, the irony uh, of, of that statement is that, do you know that Canada and both Canada and Sweden proportionally demographically were our biggest countries. Do you know that? No, but because, I'm not surprised. Because the, the typical sales ratio of an American band, U.S. versus Canada, is 10%. So in other words, if you sell a million records in America, you sell 100,000 in Canada. This is how disproportional it was in Canada. We sold two, when we hit 2 million in America, we hit 600,000 in Canada. So it seemed that everybody in Canada had a copy of our record. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, and because... the fact that we didn't come back and headline it our own, I, I can't uh, tell you that there were enough mistakes made along a, uh, the line of our history that we never came back after that. Because that legendary tour with Iron Maiden is what all the people talk about. Yes. Oh, yeah. And people still talk about that. And I'll just say this about, uh, especially about much music back in the day, because of the CanCon rules, which for folks who don't know, it's Canadian content rules. Much music was obliged to play, I think, up to 70% of Canadian videos. So a lot of Honeymoon Suite and Gowan and Helix and stuff. Um, so very right, little right. American stuff filtered in. And it, it really was the biggest of the biggest, and it was uh, round and round. It was, we're not going to take it. It was, I want to rock. So you got to be in that very select group of foreigners, if you want, for the lack of a better, that filtered through the system. And that's why we sort of went, oh, we got, you know, Honeymoon Suite, New Girl Now, or this. Oh, I'm taking this. And by the way, I love Honeymoon yeah. Sweet. So yeah, you know, it 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 the the way it w it was filtered to us, we didn't have a lot of choices, and we would look at a band like that and go, oh, yeah, that's yes, I want to buy that. That's different. So I can imagine that the Canadian content rules helped uh, Twisted Sister just because it kept everybody else away. Yeah, it, it, it did. It did. Yeah. It, yeah, You're it did. right. You're right. We were one of the few allowed in, and we sucked all the oxygen out of the room. It's really what happened. Yeah, um, and, and good and for we're you. We're forever grateful. We're forever grateful about that. So that's why I always enjoy talking to you, and I always enjoy playing in Canada. It's like when we played Metal Montreal. Heavy Montreal. Um, yeah, Heavy Montreal uh, uh, four years ago. I mean, people were skeptical about seeing Twisted on that bill. They, they wondered why we're oh. there with Slayer and Metallica. I would, I would say that I think we blew everybody off the stage then. Well, I'll but, tell you, uh, listen, I, I speak to the promoter regularly, and I remember getting an email, and they said, we booked this band for you, because I'm always the, you know, the, the, the melodic rock guy. And, and, right. and I wrote them back, and I said, just wait. They're going to blow you off the stage. And they were very... And not to reveal any secrets, but they were sort of condescending, like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, bullshit, bullshit. Well, we'll... And you played, and I was backstage, and the booker and the owner of the festival, or promote whatever, came up and said, holy, wow, that was beyond our expectations. And the fans out front, they didn't sit on their hands. They were 
mosh pitting. They they were rabid, and everybody was like, "Oh, we didn't think this was going to happen. We thought it was going to be this camp, cutesy, bullshitty hair metal." And and then you came out and played. And by the way, uh, on almost zero sleep because you flew in from I think Belgium or something the night before. We did no sleep. Thirty <laughs> no, hours away. No no sleep. Right. And they were. And then the emails, you know, in the weeks after, were like, "Holy, mm, we did not. Wow, wow, wow." They and you converted the unconvertible. Uh, yeah. By performance and uh, and of course then the media, the local media was like. Wow, because that was on, I think, the same festival that Metallica was on, and yeah. nobody was expecting Twisted to be. And and then you would look at the list, it's like, best three performances at Heavy Montreal this year. You know, Metallica, Twisted Sister, Metallica, Twist, And right. nobody thought that was going to happen. And, yeah. and you did it because on no sleep. Because nobody realized that we've been specializing into demolishing all these bands on a, on a weekly basis in Europe for years. Um, it, you know, it got to be so funny. It got to be so predictable. We were so much better than all these other bands that we would get to these festivals in which, let's say, they were co-headliners, right? Because you know how these festivals are in Europe. Like, there yep. are, you know, 30 bands over three days, right? And there's always the top two headliners. They, the, they go on at 11 o'clock at night and 1 in the morning because you know those festivals go on very yep. late. Yep, they go till 3 in the morning. Yeah, they go really late. And so typically... You'll see us in Iron Maiden. You'll see us in Guns N' Roses. You'll see it. You'll see like a zillion bands. When it gets to the top of the rung, it's us in Sabbath. It's us in Guns N' Roses. It's us with it. And it's always and we're either headlining or we're the one before it. Typically, you know, and that's and I would say of the 125 shows we've played since the band reformed 2004, we've headlined um, 75 of the world's largest festivals. Right. So we already had a. We already knew. This was already, uh, it wasn't a doubt in our mind what we could do. That's why we took on metal, we took on the Montreal thing. It's like, wait till they see what, what they, that they're in for. Yeah. We've already played with Metallica. We've played with Slayer. We've played, we've already done it. And if we became so adept at completely destroying these festivals that some of these other co-headliners with us just gave up and went, you close. In other words, we don't care. I'd rather go on earlier, frankly, than one o'clock in the morning. But Fans who I will not name because it will be embarrassing to them and their fans will be like, oh, how can you say that about my band? So I will not mention the bands. I can't tell you how many times we heard, uh, do you want to close tonight? We have a show tomorrow. We'd like to get uh, early. Okay, we'd like to leave early. And, and we go, sure, you know, fine, we'll do it. Well, what are they saying? What are they really saying? They're saying, we really don't want to go on after you. <laughs> That's what they're saying. Um we have a reputation of that. That's why when we came to Montreal, we're like, okay, put us on at four o'clock in the afternoon. I guarantee you by the time we're done, nobody will care about what happens after we're on. And that's what happened. And that's what so happened. I'm so glad, Mitch. They did it to make you happy. I'm really happy. <laughs> they did. And, and Thank it, you, Mitch. And I will say this too. The, the, normally in an earlier time slot, there's you know a few fans and stragglers. By the time Twisted hit the stage, and I think it was a little later. I think it might have been like six o'clock or something like that. It was full. I mean, the yeah. the full uh, Metallica's. Uh, I think there was fifty three thousand for that night. I mean, it was full. There, there were no stragglers. People wanted to see what this was, and 
the crowd response was overwhelming and it blew everybody away. And, and who knows, hopefully maybe someday we can convince you guys to just do one more. Uh, well, and do we, it. by the way, we videoed it. I have it on video. We uh, have all the 50,000 or 60,000 screaming. We're not going to take it. I want to rock. I mean, screaming it. We have the whole finale of the show in which people were losing their minds. Mm-hmm. We just walked off stage. Like, as you said, we hadn't slept because we got off stage at two thirty in the morning in Belgium the night before and flew in um, and did it with no sleep and just annihilated the place. And we enjoyed doing it because you know what? We enjoyed performing. It's not so much that we um, enjoy the annihilation of a crowd or winning, although that's part of it. You know, we're, we're also really good performers and it's to your credit that you maintain that, that belief in us when other people didn't in Canada. And and then, and then on top of that, Mitch, we justified your belief in us. Oh yeah, and 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 let's wrap up on that. But let's 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 release that at some point because that that's that that's a, a show that I think the world needs to uh, experience. You know, some kind of DVD CD package or something because it, it really was uh, unique and and special. But uh, I know we said we were going to do twenty minutes. We are <laughs> at an hour, unbelievably. But that's okay. how easy it is to talk to you. Um, Great, great pleasure, uh, and it just I'm going to say this for the fans. Thank you for all the music over the years, you know, from from all the sporting events where we go see and we hear we're not going to take it to the videos of I Want to Rock to uh, Under the Blade and all that stuff. It, it's just a great, great, um, you know, you really added to the American uh, culture and, and, and our fans, and just, you know, thank you. Well, Thank you. I, I, I want to say a shout out to Dee, to Eddie Ojeda, to Mark Mendoza, and the late, great A.J. Pirro. Um, it, it has been a family affair for, um, for close to 45 years now. Okay? And Eddie Ojeda and I go back to high school 50 years ago. So it's a testament to, to the unification, the family affair. When people say, do you guys get along, do you talk? I mean, we email each other every day, you know, because we have an ongoing business, whether we play or not. If anyone's curious... Every day, Dee sent me an email this morning. I uh, sent him a response. I was emailing Eddie yesterday. I talked to Mark two days ago. Um, there is no dis- har- disharmony or whatever. We stopped playing because we stopped playing. I, I was tired. I want to take a break. Dee's out there doing it. Uh, thank you for your kind words. And I want the fans to know that we, without them, there's no us. And we always appreciate their loyalty. So thank you. Happy New Year to you, by the way. Yes, Happy and, New Year and to you. Fans. And and thank you, and uh, we shall uh, reconvene and do this at another date, because uh, it's always a pleasure, and, and the stories were great, and, and it was nice to get that insight on the business and copyright and all that wonderful stuff. So as we say up here, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Take care, man. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, this is Frank Hannon, Tesla's lead guitarist. Be sure to visit my website, frankhannon.com, to check out my latest solo album. And keep on listening to Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Crank it up. From the Westwood One Podcast Network.